the Center for Teaching and Learning is showcasing faculty innovations in and out of the classroom, and we're creating a space for faculty to share ideas and learn from each other's experiences. This is one of a series of informal conversations where we ask a faculty member to describe and demonstrate their innovative practices. We're speaking today with Jason Van Nest, Associate Professor in the Architecture Department of the School of Architecture and Design. Jason earned his Master's of Architecture at Yale School of Architecture in 2005 and a Bachelor's of Science in Architecture at the Georgia Institute of Technology in 1999. He started at New York Tech in 2009 and has prior teaching experience at Yale and at New York School of Interior Design. He's a licensed architect who has contributed to several award-winning projects. Jason also consults with architecture firms about building information modeling, which in conversation you will hear as BIM, helping them use advanced technology to improve their project delivery workflows. We'll have time for questions at the end of the interview, and you're welcome to add questions and comments to the chat as we go. Welcome, Jason. Hey, good to see you, friend. So I know you teach about a dozen different courses at New York Tech. Which one is your absolute favorite and why? Um, Well, uh, I certainly have some darling courses in the School of Architecture. I I ran the gambit um, while I was still on the tenure track to try and and teach as much of the, the, um, the curriculum that we offer as possible just to sort of understand the entire school and its mechanisms. But I was brought on um, by the previous dean, Judy DeMaio, to introduce building information modeling workflows right, um, uh, into the appropriate places in our curriculum. Um, I just had, had gotten a head start. Um, and so the first and most natural place uh, for me to do a deep dive was the construction documents course uh, that the School of Architecture offers every student that gets a four or five year degree. Um, and it's a it's just a fantastic course uh, because we walk in the first day, we hand students um, uh, photographs of a building, maybe, uh, you know, a vague plan or elevation of the building. We we create teams and we spend 16 weeks forensically constructing the building through a construction document set. Um, And you see students, you know, time and time again, making assumptions, testing them, and really getting sort of their feet under themselves professionally because they're learning both a sort of graphic way of, of creating legally binding documents, but also um, sort of interacting with their medium uh, architecture um, in, in the way that they will for the next you know, foreseeable future, 10, 15, 20 years. Um, a lot of students come in, you know, confused architecture students and leave having taken their first confident steps in the profession. It's really wonderful. It's why I, I insist on teaching it every semester. Um, I think I'm over 20 times teaching it now and, and I run into the classroom the first day, you know, every semester. Nice. So, so they're taking photographs of a building and they're essentially reverse engineering. Is that what you're saying? Yes. It's, it's so much more, it's so great really what's happening in in the whole profession in the last 10 years is fantastic and since we mentioned building information modeling in in the uh 
in the intro, allow me to um, just go through a very quick mental exercise. I'm sure we've all had um, like a physics or a physical science class, maybe in middle school or high school. And you go in and like there's a Bunsen burner and a cup of water and you just time you know, the flow rate on the Bunsen burner to like one, it takes whatever, um, four minutes to boil, you write that down. And then you get a new glass of water and turn up the flow rate, you write down three minutes, do this a couple times. And in the eighth grade or so, we had to like use maybe a spreadsheet or maybe you actually had to plot it by hand, but you made a plot, you turned it in, you got a grade. And, you know, in many ways, architecture has been taught like that for a hundred years, ever since we started forming architecture schools. Um, our laboratory is studio, and uh, we don't really have access to our medium, concrete, brick, steel. We don't really build buildings in our studios. We build models. And the, the problem here is that the, the models are representations. There, it's a it's a picture of the thing you imagined, or it's a you know, chipboard model. So what makes this class so great and this technology kind of um, you know game changing? Is imagine you made an Excel spreadsheet, and and you know you have like the flow rate was one, the diameter never changes at the Bunsen burner, right? And then you know, flow rate at one, it took the What's the independent variable, the dependent variable? Like it took four minutes to boil and then flow rate up, two minutes to boil. Imagine you could reach into the spreadsheet. You could change the diameter of the Bunsen burner, right? And right here on your lab desk, you could see your Bunsen burner like jet out more fuel and, and actually measure it go faster, right? Or let's say you go into your spreadsheet and instead of saying, you know, the flow rate was nine, you accidentally type 90. And suddenly your Bunsen burner is like a jet fuel. Whoa, you know, you get burned a little and right. Right. That reverses representation. Suddenly the representation you had of all your data becomes a thing that affects reality. That's what building information modeling is now for teaching architecture and for architects. Because we used to draw elevations, but now in the elevation, we can like move a window or we can raise the roof or something. And all the plans and everything else change. The perspective changes. And you think, oh, suddenly you're in a laboratory where everything you touch has an effect that's worthy of exploration. So this class is the first introduction of that technology, not just that sort of graphic language. And... Um, Watching students in that magical kind of Harry Potter laboratory, which is an environment where everything you change is affected as everything else, students that get it quickly are very empowered. And you get way too much credit for being, you know, the guy that taught them that instead of um, what, what is the truth, which is now you have a new challenge. What new architecture can you think of with this tool? You know, We've had generations of folks that didn't have access. Let's see what we can figure out now. And so I love capturing my students out of, out of um, that class and going straight into Project Integration Studio because I want to see what they think of next, right? We did 16 weeks of trying to reproduce one technology or one building. Now what? What do you want to do? And this is uh, fascinating. It's I, really I, great. I talked to one of your colleagues probably a decade ago. And he was talking about CAD and drawing plans manually versus using CAD. And he was talking about how the technology 
does the technology bias the kind of designs you create? Oh. And it sounds like this is taking it, taking that challenge up exponentially, like two dimensions into three. So, um, so you, you know, I, I am biased, uh, as you can tell, this whole conversation, right? But I, I think um, technology in many ways is a misunderstood word in the English language. And the way that I wish that conversation was framed 10 years ago is does the mode of representation bias the, the designs we make? And I think that that's absolutely true. And thus the technologies we make in order to make these representations. Really, you can't solve any problems you can't see. If you can't see the problem, you can't turn it around, look at it and solve it. And so the way we represent future buildings greatly biases the problems we're solving with those buildings or the cultures we're making uh, with these buildings. Um, and so it, it's only gotten to be a more rich and, and uh, robust conversation, both in the discipline and the practice um, with the arrival of these tools. Why are you using this tool? What, what is it that we should be doing with this tool that we couldn't before? Um, they're all, you know, front and center in studio. Fascinating. So going back from the technology to the people, um, is there a teacher or a student that you've had that really changed how you approach teaching? Uh, yes. Oh, um, you know, sometimes fate really has smiled on me in many ways. And, uh, you know, my first sort of significant office assignment uh, was next to Michelle Bertoman in the School of Architecture, who passed, I think, in 2014, um, no longer with us. Um, and um, the best thing, one of the best things about sitting next to her and telling her my, my concerns and getting under, direct and indirect advice was that she knew nothing about the technologies that, that I just spilled about. Um, but she was a consummate uh, um, sympathizer, empathizer. You know, she, she, she um, really connected with her students in ways that I still hold myself uh, 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 against, you know, here almost a decade later. Um, Michelle taught me uh, that there, when you walk into a classroom, you have three projects. Mm -hmm. the, the lowest level project from Michelle, and uh, she would take this as a compliment, um, is the transfer of technical information, right? Sort of what's on the label for that class. Um, and she took that seriously, but she thought it was the lowest level job. The second thing that that she felt uh, architects were doing, at least in or professionals were doing in the classroom, was demonstrating how professionals behave mm -hmm. and the way to uh, unpack and repackage problems in front of young professionals who are learning these sort of methods of thinking and methods of acting. The highest level for Michelle was to teach students to love something, to give them permission to fall in love with a discipline, with a medium, with, you know, whatever it is. And she didn't, I think, you know, piecing together even years later, her commentary, I don't think she taught directly how to love something, but instead 
um, demonstrated her love for the medium of architecture and for, you know, all the little footholds she got into these magical worlds of buildings and building sciences. And in doing so, demonstrating to students that it's okay. It's even sort of highly rewarding to fall in love with the discipline and to nerd out in the way that you're going to nerd out. Cause we all nerd out. And I, you know, I, I didn't have a respect for the fact that high school is really, really hard. I kind of put all that behind me because I was definitely a geek and a nerd and too busy in chess club to really realize what kind of goofball I was. Um, and the way that she showed students how to make that more than your personal identity, but the thing that will enrich you of your own mind in the, in your own garden. Um, I think it was, you know, one of the most important moments of my professional career was just sitting next to her in awe. Um, so how I think that, that answers your question. It does. Beautiful. <laughs> what, a, what a beautiful tribute to Michelle. It really is. Yes, for every day. How did that change how you approach classes and students and teaching? Um, you know, uh, it, it changed it fundamentally. So it's really hard to, to summarize it. You know, um, I was really worried at first about being the rule giver and the umpire and the, uh, the great communicator. And when I really embodied her lesson, her indirect lessons to me, um, it helped me give students permission to find their way instead of being the pathfinder for the students. So I don't, I don't know if you, you ever have bumped into Joseph Campbell's work. He makes a distinction. This is about mythology and, you know, the role of religion in society. So I just build an analogy here. But he makes a distinction between a priest and a shaman. So the priest is the rule giver and the representative of divinity on earth. The shaman is the guy who sets up the teepee and gets the peyote ready and puts you in the sweat lodge and tells you, you're going to, you're going to go on this walk and you're going to find an owl. Okay. Now the owl is going to trick you. <laughs> Watch out for the owl. Go the other way. Right. And, and um, she changed my mentality about teaching from the priestly actions to the shaman actions. You're on a journey student. You know, I am here for you every step of the way, but you got to take these steps. I'm not going to push you. I'm not going to, you know, wallop you or anything. And if you find the owl and I tell you not to follow the owl and you follow the owl, well, you're going to learn something I can't teach you any other way. You know, that's Godspeed to you, you know. Uh, <laughs> so she taught me how to be the kind of shaman in the room and not necessarily, you know, I hope that makes sense. That's beautiful. Yes, that makes perfect sense to me. Um, so I'm going to shift gears. Okay. Let's talk about COVID. Let's talk about what happened a year ago when New York Tech went completely virtual. How did you feel, first of all? Uh, well, As we talk about chaos and frustration. <laughs> uh, we, we, we had already an apartment that was too small you know, before spending 16 hours a day in it. Um, and so balancing teaching through a, you know, a Zoom webcam um, and just getting through the material uh, with the sort of pressures, um, you know, on my side of the camera was really quite distracting for the first 
two months. And then I realized some really terrible things, which was my position was privileged. A lot of our students who come from all over the New York region, you know, you know, occasionally were in a household where they weren't really safe or where they didn't have the technology um, and resources they needed that we offered on campus or that, um, you know, they were struggling with all sorts of natural mental health issues that, you know, extending from a partial imprisonment. Um, and so, so honestly, <laughs> you mean like after summer when it became, you know, no, as you're realizing this, right. So you're, you've got this technical, very hands-on subject where you might want to be side by side with a student modifying things. Right. And now you're across a computer. Yeah. And there's all the pressures and there's all the obstacles that the students have. So how did you modify in the spring? I, I don't want to project, you know, too much competence here. Uh, but, <laughs> you know, you, you know, this model that I've inherited from 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 colleagues where compassion and a sort of leading with your heart is more important than the, the technical. You know, if you go back and you look at that semester's technical output, I think you're gonna see a, a dip, quite frankly. And, you know, if I ever had to defend myself professionally, I'd say it was COVID. But the truth is, you know, I would start every meeting after, you know, two or three, after spring break, I would start with, how are we feeling out here? Everybody, let's just stand up, take your headphones out, shake it out a bit. You know, come back to me. Tell me the worst part. If you want to share with the class, you know, tell me the worst part of your of your week this week. You know, how are we coping? And I lost 20 minutes to that when, when people the third or fourth time would start, you know, revealing some of the, the struggles we, we had. The other thing I did was just end all lectures. Everything yep. got like recorded and then just face to face, you know, and um, as a result, very little technical information went across the bandwidth, comparatively speaking, um, but uh, a lot more of just like, I hear you, man. Oh, dude, that stinks. You know, a lot more of that happened. And it sounds like the students were responding. Yeah, uh, well, it's nice to be the compassionate com professor when the other four you see that, that week are less, right? Then you're given sort of a purview and a permission that they aren't. The downside is you're easier to disappoint. And so if you're afraid of a professor, you'll definitely do better in the class, just acting at perhaps from the wrong emotional place. But if you have a professor where you're comfortable disappointing them, you're more likely to disappoint them. So it was a trade-off and it's one I, I protected myself against in, in, in the next two semesters. Um, you know, it's interesting that you're saying that because at the same time, when students connect with a professor, their motivation increases and they'll work harder. And often that's a stimulus to perform better. So this I, is I an stand interesting corrected. counterpoint. Yeah, I think I think when the subject is part of their personal identity, that uh, I've seen research that that really proves this beyond the shadow of a doubt. And I think the part that my teaching experience overlaps and doesn't overlap with this research is when that subject is part of their personal identity. 
So, hey, you know, I'm connecting with this professor. I'm falling in love with the same things or related things that they're falling in love with. And I want to pursue this further. Then I see, boy, you just can't rip them away from their homework. And how often do you get to say that, right? Um, but if it's like, yeah, it's my ballroom dancing professor. <laughs> and, you know, I got to get this other stuff out. And I really am passionate about ballroom dancing. You know, what could have been in those cases is not, I think, as pronounced as, as what you'd see when it really is part of their personal identity. So I just put an asterisk, I think, on there. There, there are some of my students in the School of Architecture that are going to inherit like the family business, and it's mm -hmm. it's related to architecture. It's why they're studying architecture. But it also creates a distance. Oh, this is oh, that's that's interesting. <laughs> so, so you alluded to changes you made as we were going into the fall. Hmm. In the in last spring, we were all blindsided and had to make this emergency pivot but we knew pretty early in the summer that classes would be remote. So right. what did you change when you knew you were going into this for the semester and it was more intentional? So um, the, the fundamental problem, I don't think this is unique to architecture students, but the fundamental problem, I think with the way uh, uh, classes were delivered in the 90s, aughts and, and whatnot, was that it was always meant to be a material in a seminar. It was always meant to be a, um, not a debate, but a, a, a discourse between two voices, the textbook, which the student was supposed to read before stepping into the classroom. And then the student, or, or I'm sorry, the professor who would represent the material on the blackboard or whatever, um, using their own voice and their own thinking, filling in gaps and ultimately, you know, creating something larger than what one person could present. Right? because it was a body of information. And, you know, ever since I've taught, and I'm sure actually my own behavior reflects this, students don't read. <laughs> High-performing students will achieve many of the course readings, and more than half of my students weekly demonstrate that they have not executed. Enter COVID, where I can't even get that primary introduction of material on the, on the board in front of them. Uh, so I started recording my lectures, giving them a textbook in the lectures and you know, praying that they look at one or the other. The, the course that we talked about before, construction documents, I really wallop them on the, on the midterm. Hey, this was in chapter seven. Wait, wait, this was in chapter nine. What happened? You know, um, but I discovered pretty early on, I, I'm embarrassed to say not in the summer, but in the fall, they weren't watching the lectures either. They're just trying to jump straight to the assignment. Um, and, and I think that's something unique to architecture that we're definitely a product driven. <laughs> okay, maybe not. Uh, <laughs> uh, a lot of the way we teach in studio is kind of like what's on the boards. And so the, mm -hmm. the impulse for architecture students is to hurry up and get drawing, produce, produce, produce. And, and that's just a very big problem. Um, but I started uh, seeking uh, Noreen's help, actually, about embedding cultura uh, questions into my lectures, counting those questions as quizzes. So I didn't have a quiz anymore. And then simple questions, you know, three quarters of the way through, you can't skip. Uh, the professor in the, in the thing says, oh, and then, you know, the, the sky is blue and the grass is green. Quiz comes up. What color is the sky, right? Not, not gotcha questions, not application. Just, are, are you paying attention? You know, the same thing Netflix does. 
when they when you haven't interacted with a movie for a while, they're like, Are you, I'm streaming you. Um, you know, I saw student work improve immediately when they got sort of credit for paying attention. And, you know, I'm, I'm the first person to really be turned off by um, participation awards, you know, um, but it smoothed out the classroom interactions because then all of my classroom interaction, you know, on Zoom could be team to professor, no download of information anymore. You do that on your time when you're on the subway, you know, whenever you've got the time. And then let's talk about how you've perceived the information, how you've ingested the information and how you plan to, to reproduce the information. Allow me to reframe participation awards. Sure, sure. Um. <laughs> I said this to Fred, I better be careful now. Uh, so for starters, participation is better than an attendance grade, right? I, I oh, always, yes. when I'm talking to faculty, attendance is not part of the grade, but participation is. And the way that I frame this to my students is learning is hard work. And I yeah. expect you to invest time and energy and attention in learning. So as a way of recognizing that work, this counts towards your grade. Right. So by ascribing points to it, I'm telling the students that this matters. This matters to me. It matters to you. Um, by telling the students that learning is hard work, I'm, I'm telling them that if they're struggling, that's okay. That's what they're supposed to be doing. And if you look at theories of how we learn, retrieval practice, going back into your brain and pulling out that information is critical to learning because yeah. if you think about a, a grassy field and you walk across the field once, there's a, a faint track, right, where the grass is bent down. But the more you walk on that track, the, the deeper the bends, right, and the more clear the path is. And then if you come back a year later or a month later or a week later and you walked across once, you can't tell where you walked. But if you walk back and forth 50 times, you could still see. Yeah. And our brains work the same way. The more you retrieve a memory and the more ways you get to that memory, ah, the grass is green, that means the sky is blue. Oh, the sky is blue because the molecules are diffracting the light. So if I have multiple ways to get to that information and I use them repeatedly, I'm literally strengthening the the connections the neuronal connections in my brain and that makes it easier to get that information when i want it when i need it so if you tell that to the students also that this is backed by a lot of research on how people learn this is going to help and acknowledge that it's work and tell them I don't expect this to be a, a cakewalk. I expect this to challenge you. That's why you're here is to be challenged and learn and then cement that knowledge. Well, cement might not be good for architects uh, into your brain <laughs> in, a way, <laughs> in a way that you can get it back. Then the students are going to see the purpose for the task and what the benefit is to them. And so they're less likely to resent any kind of periodic quizzing you put in because they're going to see the value of it. I mean, you, there's so much wisdom you're throwing down here. 
So much of it resonates, but I, I just want to sort of respond to two things, which I really highly value, which is it, it took me a long time to even get inside my own skin back as an architecture student and realize that, you know, the mediums of learning matter and the multiple mediums you have to get the, to the same concept, the more likely it is that you'll access it and retain it. So, you know, I remember learning in psychology class that if you watch someone lecture, you got, you know, some unit of retention. If you write down what they lecture, you get two more units because the process of writing is another memory. And then the view, the picture, you go, oh, I can see those notes is yet another way to access. I think you were referring to those. And that's why I'm kind of okay with remote teaching at high graduate or high undergraduate levels where students are well mediated. They're in their mediums and they're thinking in terms of mediums because I don't, I think it's fantastic that I have to record a lecture and that they hear it, they see it. And, um, you know, if they can't take notes, they remember the quiz question. They remember getting it wrong. They remember so many different steps about interfacing with the material. And you highlighting that really reveals, I'm so embarrassed for him, uh, the cynicism and what I, what I reflected when I say participation awards you. <laughs> I think what I'm really, you know, frustrated with is a culture of inflated grades where you know there's a pressure on, on professors to say, well, this student really put in a lot of effort. You know, and that's not really a reflection of what a collegiate grade is. Um, and, and I think that's where you know I'm just being grumpy, white-haired old, you know, uh, you know, I just need a beard and patches here and I can I can probably retire with a pipe. I think the hair is gray. <laughs> yeah, it's already there. I should have <laughs> <laughs> So that goes to something else, right? Any task you're giving your students should be helping them get to the learning outcomes. Absolutely. And if it's not, throw it away. Absolutely. And, and then make sure the students know that, right? I have very carefully curated a set of learning experiences for you to get you here. Yep. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, it's, it's very easy to have sort of token assignments that just review... Um, but, you know, one of the reasons I really love teaching construction documents is I've taught it so many times that I've been able to tweak and, mm -hmm. you know, um, really ensure the most on-ramps per, per um, exercise. Uh, you know, I have this theory, friend. I don't know if I should reveal this. Do my students watch this? Because we got to turn off the recording, right? <laughs> Which is... You know, I don't, I, refl I, I grade all the work just for, did you, did you represent something through to midterm? And then in midterm, I warn them first day, I'm going to evaluate your midterm project like it's a legal document and I'm going to wallop you. You know, it's going to be hard. And, you know, all the grades in the class reflect that. Um, but what happens next is some of the most important magic, I think, at the college level integrity kicks in. Students say, oh, but I'm not a D minus student. I'm an A student. So I have an unlimited extra credit policy in the class to help everybody recover from that. And then you see people choose the extra credit assignment to make up midterm credit based on what they want to learn and having access to this material that they guide because it's extra credit, right? I'm not going to teach you how to make a structural plan. And what happens is they're put on their butt they have to, you know, dig deep. They say, I can make this right. 
and they choose the path they're going to use to make it right. And some of the best, you know, presentations in the class are not mine, but when I, I require students to present their extra credit for a minute or two, and, you know, they're, they're taking ownership of their experience, not just the material they're presenting. They're, you know, um, redeeming uh, in, so, in some ways um, their professional standing. And it's, it's just, you know, it's heartbreaking stuff to watch. You know, you're just like, that was great. <laughs> how, many, how many of your students do this? How many take advantage of it? Oh, I'd say, you know, at least half every semester, you know, uh, maybe, maybe uh, two thirds. Uh, but that's really a reflection on, on sort of how, you know, honestly, I grade their midterm projects. It might not be. It's also a reflection of the relationship you've built with them. Yep, the fact that the you told them what would happen and you care about their learning and they know it. If True. they did not have that relationship with you, they would throw their hands up and walk away. So the fact that the students are doing this work, I think speaks, speaks really highly of what you've learned from Michelle, that their relationships with the students are the most important thing. And then the learning will follow. I, I take the compliment, Fran, but I really think it's the quality of the student. You know, I've seen students fall on their butt and just walk away. You have too. And the fact that so many, you know, carry this, this strong level of integrity, you know, thank you for what you've said. I, I will take, you know, part of the credit. But when it comes to someone picking themselves up and gritting their teeth, all you can do is create the sort of game board and the rules, and then they make the choices. That's exactly right. How does it feel when you see your students get excited about learning and do that? <laughs> uh, you know, everybody who watches this knows exactly. Uh, it's a validation of why we chose this profession. It's a validation of the path you've chosen and the decisions you've made. It's an extension of your potency in the world to see them more potent because of it. It's empowering to know the world to be a little better pl uh, place because someone else is walking around, not with my passion, but the passion that they've forged in sort of the crucible of bad grades and, and textbooks and, and, you know, red, red marks and whatnot. Um, you know, there's this, I, I don't want to take your time too much, but there's a, a tradition in many Japanese towns to tear down the temple every generation and rebuild it. And they don't destroy anything, um, but it's an opportunity for one generation to teach the woodworking techniques to the next generation. And sometimes the, te the temples just get a little taller or something, right? They add one thing every generation. It's an exercise to teach, you know, woodworking, but it's handing over, uh, identity and handing over values. And so when a student stands up at, at you know, slam dunks, you know, the temple is being made again, the, the great, you know, worship temple of architecture. Uh, so it's bigger than me at that point. And, uh, you know, you're just lucky to witness it. That's lovely. So as we, we hope as we move into a post-COVID world, which of your innovations do you think you'll keep? 
Well, uh, so we, we talked originally uh, about building information modeling as a medium that's really helping architects everywhere, not just my students. And one of the joys I have um, is teaching in this medium. And what COVID has revealed is that, you know, once they're in there, they're in their laboratory and their physical relationship to me, like in the same room, it's actually secondary to their relationship to their medium. And their success is going to be related to that. So I'm, I'm asking, you know, my chair and my dean, can I stay remote and, and blended? Um, because it's working better at the high undergraduate level in ways that, you know, they have control of the lessons they learn and the times they need to. And it's actually a DEI benefit because a lot of our students, you know, we were founded as a commuting, a commuting school. A lot of our students actually work 40 hours a week and go to college. And so the, you know, I got to take time off. I got to go to, to, to campus and I have to like, you know, consume this lecture the professor's going to give while I'm eating Oreos in the back and, you know, quickly having street meat or whatever before I go and babysit my younger brother. Like that pressure's off. You know, you can see some students are logging in at one in the morning because they're interested, they're excited, or they're catching up. And um, what I really was not sensitive to was I formed like groups of three and the students that come from better backgrounds can take time off to come to campus and do our coursework in the computer lab, you know, on a day that's not a class day. But the students that don't have that kind of financial or schedule freedom uh, would have like, oh, I can only come Saturday morning. I gotta leave by 11. And so once you detach our students and, and they can do their, their homework collaboratively in these moments, like all three cursors are moving around in the model virtually at the same time then the students that were penalized for not being able to get on campus to do this work, that penalty is lifted and they can contribute so much more robustly in these mediums where everybody's building a building at the same time. So in studio and in, in where I use the same technology and in construction documents, I'm seeing a much higher throughput from my students, all the students, and, you know, unfortunately, more conflicts because the more time they spend in the environment, like the more, you know, they have to. But since this is the technology architects are developing for themselves and have adopted for the last five to 10 years, it's the best New York tech introduction to how to behave in an architectural office as a medium, not just like how do you talk over the water cooler, but um, what are our professional um, ways of behaving inside the medium? So I, I really can't wait to build on, on the achievements that we've, we've been offered, you know, with, with, with these tools. This is inspiring. This is really very inspiring, Jason. Cheers. And I'll note at the beginning, you talked about a different level uh, or a different aspect of equity that not all of the students have the technology at home that they needed to do the work. But I'll note that architecture has been phasing in a computing requirement, right? And so you haven't seen that yet teaching the upper level classes. But next year or maybe the year after, your students will have the computers at home. Yeah, as, as a credit to New York Tech, you know, a lot of New York Tech equipment went out to students. Sometimes they, yes. they literally ripped a, a computer out of our computer lab and just shipped yes. it to a student. Um, and the larger DEI issue is literally how much RAM does a student have in their laptop? 
um, because bigger, more RAM for architects, bigger, more complex models. And so we, we have gently phased in this laptop requirement, I think that you're referencing. I'm seeing students, and I'm also seeing students that took shortcuts because we're not like policing it. We're just saying you, you need this. Um, and those shortcuts really bite these students who had to take, couldn't afford, you know, the $2,000 laptop. Um, and so one of the things I'm really interested in is, is a new technology that many firms are adopting where all the computation happens on, on the firm server. The virtualized desktop is made. The firm server does the computation. And so it doesn't matter. You could have a Chromebook. You could have a low RAM. It's just an internet appliance where you're driving a virtual machine, ideally at New York Tech's servers. And we just take that right out of the equation. It's, it's expensive. It's a new technology. It's expensive. You know, one can hope over the next couple of years we can phase some of that in. in, yeah, in that the pressure terrific. Yeah. So I like, I like to wrap up these conversations with recommendations. Is there a particular app or a particular technology that makes your teaching better that is applicable to other disciplines? You can't. You can't respond with BIM here. Sorry. Yeah, that's, that's <laughs> fairer, isn't it? Or something fact, that streamlines your work of preparation or grading. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I, I, I got to recognize, you know, Noreen really helped me um, embed Cultura, you know, quizzes in, into my lectures. And all the policing that quizzes usually took in class is all automated and now in the background. The lecture is delivered. So I can spend a lot more of that luxurious time face-to-face -face with students and, and sometimes flipping the classroom and saying, let's, mm -hmm. let's, you teach me what you learned this week. How is this applying to your to your projects? You know, what are ways that you were surprised that this this application would happen in, you know what what problems and challenges are going to result from you know someone misinterpreting you know this lesson all of that now is all my class right and so you know it is fair to say that i'm actually extending my class because they have to consume a lecture first but in truth my classes are shorter because you know the first hour that used to be a lecture is now trimmed right off when students arrive they're present they're right there they know that they can't sit in the back and doodle while there's a they know there'll be, uh, you know, directed questions where I start with their first name and then I ask them a question. They better be on point. Um, and I do less than half the talking. I do less than a quarter of the talking sometimes. Uh, and, you know, because we teach in teams or, or team group work, you know, teaching team, um, conflicts which are natural become uh, acceptable to bring up in the classroom environment where it normally be like, Oh, we can't tell the professor we're fighting about this. You know, it, it, we, we can spend more time focusing on the way that people will have trouble with the medium and with dividing work and, you know, applying these ways for an audience, you know, the, the course lessons for a legal audience or for um, a builder, professional building audience, all of that is empowered simply because I can put a, a quiz in a lecture and let the automation, let me focus on the student experience. Thank you. Thank you so much. Sure, um, cheers. 
Jason, I can't thank you enough for joining us today. Um, we've had so many conversations in my office in the city, and every time we talk, I leave with all sorts of new ideas. And um, can't thank you enough. So I, it's been a pleasure. We have been talking today with Jason Van Nest, Associate Professor of Architecture in the School of Architecture and Design. Um, this conversation is part of the Great Teaching series and will be available on the Center for Teaching and Learning webpage, nyt.edu slash CPL. If you'd like to be featured in the Great Teaching series, please email the Center for Teaching and Learning at cpl at nyt.edu. Or better yet, fill out the form at bit.ly, B-I-T dot L-Y slash great hyphen teaching. Thanks so much for joining us.